Welcome to Stoveside Chat. The chef is ready for your kitchen tour. Please come this way. All right, cool. Thank you for uh, joining us, Chef uh, Calvert. Uh, Calvert? Of course. Calvert, I'm not yeah. Calverts. Yeah, I'm actually Calvert, very yeah. English. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it sounds very French. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I was. I read your your bio a little bit, so I know you you have an English uh, background. So I'm not sure it's mm. kind of like a Colbert kind of thing. I'm not sure how you say like you know, he <laughs> himself, himself as Colbert, but you know, at first I was like, oh, Colbert. Sure, of course. It depends how fancy I want to sound, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it depends <laughs> your circle I'm in. <laughs> right, especially if you're working in a in a in a kitchen. I, I guess uh, you know if you're in in Europe, maybe you call yourself Calvert or something. Well, well, actually, a lot of people um, when they come to the restaurant, they think I am French. Um, oh, okay. And actually, I remember the first year um, I was in the Michelin Guide. We got the first star uh, a couple years ago now. And right. I, I've waited, you know, I, I've cooked for 16 years and I waited my whole life to be in the Michelin Guide. And I opened the guide oh. and it said Frenchman Daniel Calvert. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> 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 don't show my grandma. <laughs> Now you're part of the uh, European. You're back in the European zone, I guess, right? <laughs> Are we? I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess, no, no. I guess I'm guessing so, like yeah. your name, right? So that way. So. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it as a compliment, I guess, that they think I'm French. Maybe it's a good yeah. thing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So thanks again for uh, joining us. I guess, Calvert, uh, 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 you can, Chef Calvert, you can, I guess, uh, first off, sort of uh, describe yourself and then introduce yourself to our listeners uh, and readers? Um, I guess, yeah, I, I, my name's Daniel. I'm the chef at Bellon in uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, we mm -hmm. have one, one Michelin star. We're um, San Pellegrino, Asia's 50 best number four this year, which was great. And uh, right. we are, we are modern French, but classically rooted, I guess, is the best way to say it. Right, right. So I guess, uh, you know, obviously you started cooking really early, like 16 years old, right? That's what I... Yeah, when, we, uh, when, when I left school, we, actually you could leave school when you were 16. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I left school at 16 and I immediately started working like a month later in, uh, in a restaurant called The Ivy. Um, that, uh, sorry, let me just close this door. <laughs> you can hear me better. Yeah. A uh, restaurant called The Ivy in London at the time, which was uh, like a brasserie bistro, uh, large scale restaurant. But um, yeah, it was it was quite a quite a quite a shock, I guess, at the age of 16. <laughs> right. Right. And was it something that you always were interested in uh, in terms of cooking? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to cook. I knew I already knew when I was about 13 that I wanted to cook. Um, I don't know why I, my family are not in that way inclined at all with the background of them at all. Um, but it just, it just felt correct. And I, and I already knew that I didn't want to continue studying and, and, um, yeah, I never, I never felt that, that I was, um, needing to continue to stay at school. And I already knew that this is what I wanted to do and I can make myself a success out of it. Very nice. And obviously you worked at a lot of, uh, top restaurants in the world per se. Yeah. I mean, I always chose, um, I, I always wanted to travel and, uh, of course, London. I, and I always chose these restaurants based upon, um, not because they had three stars or two stars or whatever. It was actually what I believed to be the best restaurant in the city at the time um, through a lot of extensive research and, and how I liked the look of the food more than anything. Of course, when I worked mm -hmm. at Pied Terre in London, uh, there was only like four two-star restaurants at the time. And I truly believed that was the best one. Uh, so I wanted to go work there. It was the hardest. Oh, that was so hard. 
it was so so hard and you worked so many hours and it was a hard environment but the food was so good it was it was really worth it right. um and then i moved to per se of course um because i believe I, i wanted to live in new york and i believed that per se was the best restaurant in new york at the time and i, I really do believe that um and of course Just, it just coincidentally it had three stars and it was Thomas Keller. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so I got lucky, I guess, yeah. And then the Bristol, of uh -huh. course, uh, Epicure. You know, I wanted to live in Paris. I felt as if you were cooking French food and you never really validated yourself by working in France. You know, French food is, is, um, is different in every city, everywhere. And I think it's truly only French when it's in Paris. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in so, what sense? I mean, yeah, like what, obviously each region has their own style. You know, um, I, I guess, uh, not French food, I guess, I guess high-end fine dining French cuisine is only true in Paris, I would say. Let's okay. say that because, you know, people, the way people cook in Paris and the houses that exist like uh, George Sank, um, the Bristol and L'Ambroisie, there's just no thought or consideration for the financial implications of this restaurant and it only really exists in Paris. Like you can charge someone 150 euros for a starter and, and people pay it. And I don't know if there's anywhere else in the world you can do that. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I was yeah. in Paris a few years back and I don't think I've been to like the top, top end restaurant. I'm just, yeah. for me, it's, it's yeah. pretty, uh, you know. I could never there, afford right? it when I lived there. Ironically, when you work there, you can't afford to, to do it. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then, so then you, you know, obviously you rise to the rank and how did you find, especially as someone that's that young, was that uh, a challenging thing for you to, to work in a, uh, you know, a tough environment, obviously in a, in a kitchen? Yeah. I mean, I've always spent my life surrounding myself with people that are older than me and, and obviously more intelligent than me. And I think that you just kind of get used to after a while you, you are the youngest person in the kitchen for many, many years. And, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think I was, you know, I, I don't hold on to those kind of things. A lot of people think it's quite uh, impressive and um, as an age and I don't, and age as an expiry, expiry date, you know, it's, uh, it's not so cool to be the youngest person to do this or this and this, because I think it, at some point you hang on to that for the rest of your life and it doesn't really, it's not really relevant anymore, but I was the youngest sous chef for Thomas Keller uh, per se. I was at, at 23, you know, I, I don't think that that still has been beaten. Um, is, and not that yeah. I, yeah. And I, and looking back, yeah, it's pretty cool, but I, I never felt that it was, it was to rest on my laurels with that. And I think that, yeah, it was great that I was a sushi 23 and I could have, I could have left there at, well, I can't remember how old I was, 25, 26 and taken a head chef position somewhere because you were the sous chef for Thomas Keller. But I didn't, I took a commie chef position at Epicure because um, I, I wanted to continue learning. And the only position he would give me was a commie, which is the okay. lowest of the low in the kitchen. Um, but I wanted a job. So that's, That's how I ended up there. And, and then all of a sudden on the flip side, you're actually the oldest commie in the kitchen. <laughs> and you went from being the youngest guy who did a great job and now you're the oldest guy in the kitchen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, so now so you're sort of the target yeah, back kind of thing, right? Yeah, you can't take these things so seriously because it's on the flip mm -hmm. side. Now you're an old dog and you and you got some 19-year-old telling you how to do something again. It's quite, it's very humbling. <laughs> very humbling. But it right. was that was actually the best thing I ever did for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you end up to uh, going to Hong Kong and running uh, Belon there? Well, we opened Belon in 2016 and I, I wanted to change from living in Paris. Um, I'd only been there for about two years and I, and I love Paris, but it wasn't really my favorite city to live. Um, you know, at the end, I really enjoyed it, but it was a hard transition for me because I didn't speak much French. Actually, I didn't speak any French when I arrived and I thought mm -hmm. I could speak French and then I realized after a morning in the kitchen, I didn't speak French. <laughs> <And it> was, <laughs> 
it was a very difficult time and it took mm-hmm. about nine months for me to really settle in. And I think that, um, you know, working in France is, is a difficult thing for anybody who's not French. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did a great job and I really enjoyed my time at the Bristol and I just felt that I wanted to, if you ever wanted to, 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 um, create something for yourself that you had to step away from these big houses and, um, you know, others you get sucked in and you get trapped forever. Like there's still people working in these places that were working there when I was there and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that, but you just don't, you miss your opportunity to create something for yourself, I think. And you, you get used to having all the luxuries of, um, these restaurants and then, um, you don't get to build it yourself. Right. So you're kind of so, like a, in a career kind of mode in that case, right? If you just, I think so. Yeah. I think you're more like a, you're a forever employee or a salary man, you know, to one of a better mm-hmm. word. And yeah, of course you have the creativity, but you're also still under someone else's umbrella. And um, not that it's a bad thing. It's just wasn't for me, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Bellon came up and I've, you know what? Bellon was not the ideal project at all. It was a bistro in Hong Kong. Right. Uh, and after right. working for fine dining restaurants forever, you think, you know, we just wanted to change something different and um, to see Asia, of course, it's an amazing, amazing continent. Hong Kong's definitely my favorite city in the world. It's, it's amazing. Um, but you have to make these things what you want them to be. And of course, we, we, we opened Bellan. It was a bistro. It was not, you know, we were cooking with expensive ingredients. It was not cheap and there was a lot of backlash and it just took a good couple of years for the, the, the project to really take off and, and people to understand it and appreciate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a sort of a different, very different. And I actually, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, so um, even though I don't oh, live cool. there right now, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, uh, I understand sort of the, the situation a little bit there, especially, mm. especially when it comes to dining and stuff. So, you know, you described at Belon, the food is sort of simple, familiar, flavor profiles, but executed to a high degree. Um, to the extent yeah, that I you guys so, make, yeah. yeah, to the extent that you guys make all the puff pastry in house, everything's made in house. Bread, pastry, juice, everything. Yeah. Right. We don't buy anything, you know, it's, we're still there. We're only open for dinner and we're, we're still there at eight o'clock in the morning every day to just to get ready for dinner service. And it's, I just can't think of any other way of doing it. We don't keep any, you know, I'm sure a lot of chefs work the same way. I don't keep anything from the day before. We don't, you know, we don't batch cook certain things and everything is done every single day and it's an extremely repetitive mm-hmm. environment, but um, it tastes better. Yeah. I can't, I can't do it any other way. I just don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, interesting thing for me because that's you know to your point it's difficult and it's a high standard to lift up to mm. so yeah. you know why is that an important thing for you and why did you decide to do that kind of i think that um you know if you if you're working in a pub right as a chef mm-hmm. you're still working around the same amount of hours as you are in a fine dining restaurant so you may be a little more uh in the in the fine fine place so if you're spending that much time away from your friends and family i, I just think you should do the best that you can and um I think that uh, there's no point getting out of bed and, and not really doing the very best you can. It's just a waste of time. I think you may as well find an easier job. So mm-hmm. if you are de- dedicated to spending that much time away from people, then give it everything you have and, and, and hold yourself to high standard. And no one's going to, if you're the boss, no one's going to hold you to a standard. Like I can do whatever I want and no one's going to tell me that it's wrong, but you have to have right. that self-discipline to, to know, okay, no, that, that is a, that is not cooked correctly. I can't serve that. Well, that bread is a little bit, you know, it's not crusty enough or I shouldn't serve it. And you have to have that self-discipline. Otherwise you'd end up with nothing. Right. So that's sort of yourself, your standard, your own standards and trying to live up to that. 
yeah and and you have to you know you can you can give up so much in your life but as a chef you should never give up your standards because that really is everything and as soon as you as soon as you accept send in something that you know isn't incorrect it's just a slippery slope so it's just mm -hmm. is it it's easier for me to have a black and white approach if it's correct yes if it's not then we don't do it there's no there's no gray area i don't work with gray area and i think as soon as you do things become very mediocre right that's a that's a good approach actually it's a difficult one but i think it's, it's a good approach. it's a difficult one it, you know it's difficult but it's actually quite straightforward if it's good it's good <laughs> if it's bad it's bad <laughs> nothing in right. between <laughs> right and then from an outcome standpoint for sure i guess executionally that's where the challenge comes in right yeah it's just a repetition of doing you know everyone anyone can make a great plate of food once and take a photo of it and put it on instagram but it's actually doing it every single day and having that desire to get out of bed and do the same sauce that you did yesterday but make it exactly the same mm -hmm. right. yeah that's that's where that's where the the hard part is it's not glamorous you know it's not you know you have to really enjoy the repetition and the mundaneness of your job to get through it every single day yeah that's funny i mean uh, i guess especially nowadays with all these cooking shows and you know yeah uh different programs that come on it seems like it's a very glamorous job you you're creating different things but you know to your point yeah it's it's glamorous one day a year when you're up on stage collecting your michelin stars you know that's quite glamorous <laughs> but aside from right. that the other 364 days are not that great <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know you have to find your own pleasure in that and i, I take the pleasure in in making a or, or making a sauce and, and I can make it the next day exactly the same, if not better. And then, you know, showing someone else how to do that too. And that's, that's where I take the, the most pleasure. Like we have in, in my team, we don't have many cooks uh, that have worked in many fine restaurants before. Like they don't have resumes like I do, for example, but mm. to see these guys cooking to a certain level because of what we have built at Belong, that's the most rewarding. Yeah. Right. That helps your team to achieve your goals. As yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's my responsibility to make sure that when these guys are working for me and spending so much time there that they receive, you know, the accolades or the, or the, the, the tools to put on their resumes for the future as well. And also to learn how to cook ultimately. Mm -hmm. For sure. And then, so related sort of to that is uh, obviously we're talking about working in a city like Hong Kong. Uh, mm. The culture of food is obviously very strong there. You know, there's a strong history of food and, and yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone in Hong Kong. Which I don't know if I'm surprised by this. That everyone knows how to eat and dine. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I, it's, it was bizarre that I think for many years Hong Kong was not considered a, a world-class food city in terms of Western food. Of course, Chinese food I love, and you know, you cannot find better um, right. than you can in Hong Kong. But um, yeah, there wasn't like a huge um, following or a hugely uh, successful Western restaurant scene up until like the last few years, I would say. And it's surprising because the guests really know how to dine and they've dined everywhere. They've eaten everything. They've, they've been to every restaurant you can ever think of. And they just know better. They, they really know better and they, and they have a high standard. And I think they've been let down for many years um, in terms of, you know, you have these guys who come over from other countries and just because of their background, they think they know better than the guests. And it's not true at all. Like Hong Kong diners are the, some of the most discerning I've ever come across. Mm-hmm. And do you find, I guess, in a city where as much as people know how to eat and, and are knowledgeable mm. about food, there's not a lot of local products. Uh, do you find that challenging? Yeah. It's a city of importation, right? It, it is challenging, of course. Like, you can't, there is that inconsistency of, okay, I've got to order this thing and it may not come in correctly um, and I've got to deal with it. But also, it's quite freeing as well because now 
you have the excuse of being able to import whatever you want and no one's going to judge you for it. So right. I can order Masatakis from Japan and I, can, and I get a daily delivery from Tokyo, uh, you know, every single day. Um, whereas if I was in a, in, a, in a bountiful region and I was flying, you know, just because you're in a bountiful region doesn't mean that's the best product in the world, but right. I have that ability to fly in whatever I want because it's what I consider the best and no one judges me for it. Right. I guess it gives you a certain different kind of freedom as well in that case. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? You, you want to shop and support local, but if there is nothing local, then what choice do I have but to import turbot from Brittany? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have to. My hands are tied. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, so I guess switching gear a little bit, uh, obviously the pandemic, the COVID-19 has a huge industry impact as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think, or how do you see, how have you seen customers respond to that? You know, other, other, you know, things that you've come across. I think that um, we've come across really supportive guests and understanding guests, and and uh, people just want to dine out and support the restaurants and support that. Like, there's a huge community around that, and like we have more regular guests than I've ever experienced in my life that uh, come to Belon once a week. To- twice a month, three times a month, and they just want to support and give as much as they can. And it's remarkable. I mean, of course, it's very fortunate that they have the, the means to do that. But um, there's just so much community support around that. And yeah, of course, the restaurants have been opened and closed. And now currently we're closed for dinner. We have to open only for lunch. But my restaurant's full the rest of August just for lunch. And it's just the support. And that's right. pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. And also, they're, they're very responsible. You know, everyone's wearing masks. Everyone's sanitizing hands. It's, it's amazing that we've kept the cases so low. And it's, um, you know, of course, we just had a spike. We had a third wave come through, um, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because for the most point, most part, that Hong Kong was doing such a great job in containing this pandemic. And um, I believe in a week or two, we'll be back on track again. Yeah, there's just so much responsibility. And uh, yeah, you can't get into an Uber without someone taking your temperature. It's, it's insane, but it's great. Yeah. Right. I guess uh, from what I know, obviously, just because, you know, Hong Kong has experience with SARS before, so they're mm-hmm. a little bit more prepared yeah. as, as to what happens and how do you deal with sort of yeah. similar situations. Yeah, for sure. They just lock it down immediately and uh, life life gets a little disrupted for a second and then it just gets back on track. I'm sure in a week or two, it's, it's going to slowly trickle back back on track again. Yeah, Cases right. are dropping, which is great. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But and so... It's very. T- it's a very testing time for the industry. You have to be very dynamic, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, you have to see, and you have to be very cognizant of the fact that the guests are super sensitive, and you know, they don't want to sit near someone. And you got to be really clean with us. I mean, of course, the restaurants we 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 we're trained so well in cleaning anyway. It's, it's second nature mm-hmm. to us, but it's more, um, you know, the the sanitation and and the visual sanitation of things that the guests want to see, and you really have to make that effort to go the extra mile for that. Right. Right. And then sort of related to that is not just from, you know, how they support the restaurant, but also mm. um, for food and cooking itself. Uh, obviously, I, I live in North America now, mm. so we do have a lot of uh, places that are just open for delivery or, yeah. you, know, you know, you're not allowed to stay indoors or whatever the case may be. So yeah. do you see any sort of trends or, you know, uh, you know, people obviously cook a lot more at home as well. Do you see any trends oh, coming up? Yeah, uh, I mean, actually in the last week, I've probably had people over at my house or been invited to people's houses for dinner more than I have done in the last four years in Hong Kong because you're mm-hmm. always out at a restaurant and actually you forget the joy of eating at home and being at home. 
I, I think, you know, probably to you, you were born in Hong Kong, you, people just don't spend time at home. Everyone's yeah. out and like, but you spend so much money on rent. It just makes no sense. <laughs> you spend so much money and you're never there. So yeah. I've actually rediscovered the joy of being at home and cooking at home and entertaining at home. Of course, my apartment's the size of a shoebox, but you know, it's, it's actually That's quite everybody nice. in Hong Kong, right? Really? Yeah. It's, it's a small shoebox and I'm only can get four people in at a time, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's quite nice. And I forgot that, forgot the joy of that because mm -hmm. it's so accessible just to eat out. You know, it's, it's actually costs a lot of money to cook at home rather than eat at, at, at either the restaurant. So you always eat, eat out. And, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I think that, that, I hope that's a trend that's going to remain. Right. So I guess home cooking will still sort of remain uh, one of the, I guess it will come back more like it will come back as a, as a thing that people want to do more. I, guess. I hope so. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of restaurants doing these takeouts and high end takeouts and this X, Y, Z. And I think it's, it's a great thing for right now, but I don't see a future in it. I think the price is just outweighs the, the gain of the guest. You know, people are, it's almost the same price as eating in the restaurant. So, and the quality of course is not going to be the same at all. Um, and for right now, it's kind of a novelty, I think, but I don't see it lasting. Um, I myself wouldn't really go for it, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I would rather just cook at home, yeah. Yeah, I think I've had a couple of experiences with uh, relatively high-end delivery services. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, a couple of things is, one is usually it feels like, Obviously, just because of logistics, you can't do certain things. Right? Like if it's yeah. a foam, you can't do a foam because it's gonna it's gonna go away. Yeah. Um, you know, and also just the the kind of food that you usually get, and as far as delivery goes, it's more. I wouldn't say it's necessarily like what you relate or what you would associate with a high end dining, right? So yeah, that's where I find. Uh, you know, to your point, I don't know if yeah. high-end delivery would be a lasting thing that way. No, why, why pay for it? You know, I, I think that maybe the future is, is restaurants providing something to cook at home, like a, a ready-to-cook kind of option. I think um, I think that's going to be quite popular, and I think restaurants will have to vote, diversify and, and maybe create something like that. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of like a whole meal at home, it's yes, I don't think it's here to stay. It's a novelty, um, and I think that's not really the answer to the situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I was reading a quote of yours. You said, uh, don't give people what they want, make them realize mm. that they didn't know they wanted. So <laughs> I, find that, I, find, I find that very interesting. I think that's something that I think Steve Jobs has a similar uh, sort of uh, mentality. Oh, really? So, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah, know I mean, I, the quote, I think one well, of the coolest story was that uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was iPhone. So mm. you know, obviously before iPhone, no one had the idea of putting all these apps and different things in yeah. the phone. So he was the first person that said, basically, you know, you don't give them what they expected to have. Yeah, but it makes yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Thing, and right? I think it's true. You know, if you give people what they, they want, nothing really progresses, but you have to do it well enough to convince people that that's what that they want something that they didn't know they that they needed. You know, I guess, yeah, like Steve Jobs, I guess I never really thought of it like that. But um, mm -hmm. I think that's the only way you're going to break through. And I think in Hong Kong in particular, um, you do get stuck in a rut of this, the same kind of restaurants opening and, and, and people, you know, they know what they like and they, and they don't not necessarily want to be educated or challenged. And uh, you know what I mean? You want, it's most, even myself, I go out for dinner. I just want to go out for dinner. I don't need to know, you know, I don't know. I don't need to know where your dairy cow comes from or, you know, how, you know, how long you've been aging it for, for example. It's just, it's not that interesting. I think I just want to taste it and enjoy it. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I think that you just got to convince people that what you're doing is correct. And yeah, it's may, it may be not something they've had before or paid for before, but they're going to really enjoy it and keep coming right. back. Right. And so with that, I'm trying to, trying to understand a little bit how do you, you know, how did you, what made you thought that way, what instilled that sense in you? And also in a food sense, how did you translate that onto the plate? I think that there has to be um, a certain level of familiarity for the guests to be comfortable. So, I mean, some people do it very well with these crazy combinations of flavors like white chocolate and, and potato and caviar and all this kind of stuff. And for example, this is the first one on my, my tongue, but, and, and some of it can be quite remarkable, but I think that you never want to alienate your guest. Um, and I think that, well, I mean, look, look at the dishes of Boulogne, for example, we have a, we have a small pasta dish, which is it's basically tomato, basil and burrata pasta but right. it's presented in a way that maybe they didn't expect. So they have that element of familiarity of, okay, well, this is, this is something I know, but I've never seen it like this before. And that's, mm. uh, that's quite cool. And it's not so far out there that they, they don't have a reference point to it. I think the important thing is you have to have a reference point to what you're serving for it to be viable or craveable way. for that matter. Well, you can come up with something that's super creative and you may really enjoy it as a chef, but the guest doesn't have that emotional response to it. Um, so mm. is that going to make them want to come back and have it again? I, I, I don't know. Whereas okay. if you, for example, have a Milfoy, which everyone's had a Milfoy before, but you try to do the best example of that Milfoy, they have a reference point to, to something they've had before. Oh, I had a Milfoy before, but it wasn't as good as this. Or, oh, I had a Milfoy before, but, and this really reminds me of that. And it's, and they want to keep coming back and having it again and again and again. And I think that without being cliche and, and serving too many classic dishes, which is, not the easy option, of course. So you, you have to have, even if you're becoming creative and, and doing dishes that people haven't seen before, there has to be an underlying familiarity of that. Right. And I think that's the way. You can't just go all guns blazing and, and, uh, and try to sell them on something they've never seen before. You have to package <laughs> it in a way that they're going to be comfortable with consuming. Right. So there's some sort of um, reminder of what they've had before or some sort of... Uh, I think so. Of what they had before. I think it's and, it's and it's just done in a tasteful way. And I think that uh, people don't realize, you know, we, we have we, we we the way we serve the menu at Bologna, it's it's actually staggered like a tasting menu, but it's it, it's dressed up and presented in a way that people don't realize they're actually having a tasting menu. You know, we don't call it a tasting menu. It's it's more like uh, a progression of dishes from our a la carte menu, but it's it's designed in a tasting menu. But I've never said the words tasting menu because I particularly don't like tasting menus. It's it's very egotistical and it's very, um, you know, here you're at my house. This is what I'm going to cook for you. You have to give guests some kind of freedom and options and, and, and make them think that they're, they're actually in control when really they may not be. <laughs> <laughs> the illusion of control, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit of control, but you're not really getting any. Yeah. I'm actually <laughs> just going to Jedi mind trick you into thinking that you're, you're actually choosing what you want to have for dinner, but I'm controlling most of it. <laughs> right. Right. Fair mm. enough. Yeah. This sort of the, um, it's it's not a partnership, right? Really, between the the chef, you know, and the restaurant. It's, it's and, a and it's a relationship, and um, mm. I think that when you go to a restaurant, it's it's never necessarily the best meal you're ever going to have is the first visit. It has to be good enough for you to come back, of course. But um, you know, you you as a guest, we you have to get to know us, or we have to get to know you and what you like, and 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 then it comes it it just moves forward from there. And if you eat a balon, I think you you will have a great meal, but. I believe you, your best meals will come uh, like visits visits later where you've had certain dishes and now I now I understand what you like and I'm going to really 
find something special for you and 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 you know that that's okay it's okay to have different experiences for different guests because of of um of uh, loyalty i think it's mm-hmm. it's a two-way street you know if i have a guest that comes once a week on a saturday night they truly are going to get the best of what i have um as opposed to some someone who's maybe been this their first time and you know they're going to have a great experience but their experience will never be as good as that other guest who comes so often because from their input to the mill and my input into the mill. Right. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. That's that, that you have these restaurants where I think that they strive for um, equality in every diner. And that, that's great. But I believe that not everyone, you know, everyone's going to have a great experience, but no one's going to have a truly excellent one. And I think that you can't give the best to every, everyone because the best is limited. And if, mm-hmm. if it's, if it's not limited, then it's not the best. Right. The best is defining, right? The best should be the, the top 1% of what you have. But if you're giving that to 100% of people, it's not really the best. So there is that sort of distinction between the familiarity and all the, the actual sort of extra things that you can provide once you have that relationship. Yeah, I think so. And I, I don't think there's a problem with that. I think that people mm-hmm. think that um, that's, that's um, what's the word? Mm, there's a bias towards certain guests and there's a bias towards, you know, uh, status and, and 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 um and uh type of person and, and class and it's not that at all it's truly about how many times you come to my restaurant and maybe how nice you are as a guest <laughs> <laughs> you know if you're right. if you're an asshole i'm not really going to give you the time of day but if you're a nice person to my my team i'm probably going to give you anything you want yeah yeah sure sure i mm. that, that's definitely i can see that happening because that's yeah. your point like the more you know someone just like any relationship right the more you know someone yeah the better that, that things usually gets, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, of course, everyone pays the same money and, and, every, and everyone is welcome to the restaurant. But um, it's just an investment in time. And, and if you're willing to give that investment to the restaurant, then the restaurant will give it back to you. Right, fair enough. Yeah. I think that um, we've lost that um, idea of of um neighborhood restaurants and and like well, i remember as a kid there was only about three restaurants we ever went to namely because i was in a small town and there wasn't anything really there but right. you know we knew the manager's name and 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 he knew that my father wanted a certain table and he and he knows that my dad wanted this and and, and the bill to be dropped at a certain time of day uh, of mm-hmm. the of the meal and and you just learn each other and i think there's a because there's so many restaurants these days you have a danger of losing that uh that that relationship and you know, we had, uh, when I was a kid, we had a restaurant we went to every, every Saturday lunch with my grandparents for breakfast and they knew us and, and they knew what we wanted and, and they knew the table that we wanted to sit at. And like, that's lost. That's so charming, but it's so lost. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a friendship, that thing becomes. Yeah, it's a friendship. It becomes family. Mm-hmm. You know, you share, you share the most intimate experiences at a restaurant, but if you're always constantly going to new places to, to have these experiences, then you, you're, you're losing that um, ability to be enriched by them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then also in one of my research, I, yeah, I saw you had an interview about music. So you're really into music, it seems. It's a big part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It is, yeah. It, you know, I think for a long time, it, it was more so back when I was younger than it is now. But um, I, I, would, mm-hmm. I would for sure, uh, I would yeah, listen to anything and everything. And I would really, um, aside from cooking, I was at, at concerts and shows all, and festivals all the time. And unfortunately I'm a little old for that now, but uh, I think, you know, I, I would much rather sit down at a show rather than stand right down the front and have beer thrown at you. But um, it's, uh, it is a huge part of my life and I do listen to a lot of music and um, it's a real escapism. Yeah. Right. 
do you find any sort of similarities in food or inspiration? I find that, um, you know, I follow the same bands and I listen to a lot of the same stuff nowadays and, and for good or bad, like you can have a band that, that, that launches an album and it's, it's, it's amazing and you love it and you want them to do the same thing over again in their next album and then they change their direction and you think, oh, I didn't really love that as much, but I still enjoyed it and I'll, yeah, I'm still going to buy the third one and they changed it again. You're like, well, actually that's quite good. And, and I think that that's a good reminder for us as chefs to, you know, we don't have to stick with the same stuff all the time. We can reinvent ourselves gradually and, and, those people that really support you, they, they will be there through through the, the, the meals that maybe weren't quite as good as the last one, but they'll come back again too. Because if you're not, you know, you can't always be excellent. You know, every dish can't be perfect every single time if you're trying something new. But if, if you're doing the same thing all the time, of course it's going to be great. And people will come back, but also people will get bored. And uh, I think I find a lot of familiarity in music and, and the fact that, you know, these artists are trying something new and they're, without real regard for for the listeners for example but it has to be like that because then they'll progress and there's progression you know i can cook uh i can cook roast chickens for the rest of my life and people will probably enjoy it but i don't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> maybe for your family that's it right yeah exactly maybe on a sunday <laughs> maybe maybe one day i'll be able to eat another roast chicken but right now i can't do it <laughs> <laughs> It actually is funny because when you mentioned, you know, bands, the first, first, you know, description, the first come to mind is Radiohead, right? So Radiohead obviously, is a great example of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, all, all they want, like, all they want to hear is Karma Police, you know, you, you, and they refuse to play it. And it's mm -hmm. a great track, but they just don't want to do it anymore. And like, good for them. Good right. for them. Yeah. Right. But as yeah. a part of you as a guest, you probably, or a, a listener, you want to hear those tracks and you want to taste that food, but yeah, it's you got to you got to try something new, and I think Radiohead is a perfect example of that because they've alienated so many people, <laughs> except for their their real loyal fan base, and um, for better or worse, and then then they have highs and lows, and that's that's a true artist, yeah. Right, and I think actually even with that, I mean, I remember uh, going to Mercer a few few years ago, and mm -hmm. uh, you know they've been around for a long time, and so obviously they have. Uh, essentially the greatest hits, so to speak, right? So, yeah. Um, and so when I went, it was actually their, I think, 10th, 10th anniversary. Wow. So that's exactly what they did. So they put together a different menu, which is just yeah. a collection of their best dishes. And then yeah. they have the new new stuff as well. So you get to choose mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that's that's quite a good way of doing it. Yeah, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. We've actually just started putting a lot of the classic dishes from like four years ago at Boulogne back on the menu because people want to see them again. And uh, I don't necessarily think they fit anymore or I don't particularly like them, but um, <laughs> it's a nice retrospective, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. And you just remember, oh, I remember when we did that. It's just, it's emotional attachment to the certain things and, and your guests that have been there for the last four and a half years and there's so many of them, they're like, oh, I remember when we had that dish. I really loved that. And you think, well, oh, I don't really like that anymore, but if you really <laughs> want to eat it, I'll, I'll make it for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I guess if you, even in that situation, you can probably always add a little bit of something new. You yeah, know, you, maybe you just, new ingredients. yeah, through your own progression as a chef, you think, well, actually, this time I'm going to do it like that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same dish, but hopefully it's a little better. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I look back at some of the food we did four years ago. I'm like, what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, one of the, one of the related questions would be, what is your favorite you know right now that you have as far as uh, dishes that you make mm, my favorite uh you know we do a lot of um i don't know my favorite i think the one that is most synonymous with where we are 
um, is probably the drunken pigeon dish that we have at Belon. Um, and I learned this mm -hmm. from a friend, Jawa Yu, who's a chef at Holy Fook, which is a, which is a restaurant in, in Hong Kong. He's a great chef. He's a, he's a very, he's not Chinese cooking trained at all, but he cooks the best mm -hmm. Chinese food. He's, he's so good. Uh, but it's also very relevant. So anyway, I had this dish at his, his restaurant. It was a drunken pigeon. He, he, he cut it. He was very Chinese style. It was cut exactly the way you would cut it in a Chinese restaurant. And I felt like that a that piece was of kind of right. Yeah, separated and sliced thinly and, and marinated. And it was it was an amazing dish and the cooking was so good and the sauce was really nice. And and it was it was something that I saw that I thought that you could really translate it into a, a French or European style dish without losing any of the um the the nuances of what it makes makes especially in Chinese cuisine. Um mm -hmm. and I felt that it was a very tasteful way of of being um inspired by uh localities and you know there's a lot of people that, that come over to to asia and they they get blown away by the ingredients and you all of a sudden you got like ginger and yuzu uh over salmon and they think that's like a dish and it's like fusion and it's disgusting but this was truly like a real for want of a better word a fusion of two different cuisines that truly worked well and i think that a beautiful perfectly cooked pigeon breast with a sauce made from yellow wine which is ultimately this, similar to Shaoxing wine, which is Chinese, but we use yellow wine from Jura uh, in, uh, in France, of course, which is oxidized, very oxidized, and has the same properties as a, as a Shaoxing wine. And you serve it in a, in a very European way, but it's, it's fundamentally the same as a Chinese dish. And the response we had to that dish was huge. And I think that um, a lot of local, I mean, my clientele is 99% local, and we don't get that many expats, which is great. Um, it's because it's the business is evergreen and it's always busy. The restaurant's always busy for that. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of people truly enjoyed that dish and felt that it was a, a, a respectful way of um, being inspired by where you are. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the challenge as far as, uh, I guess, food and, and cooking nowadays is a lot mm -hmm. of, there's so many influences that sometimes you do get lost. I imagine you, you get, get overwhelmed. Yeah. You get overwhelmed. You get down a rabbit hole and all of a sudden you think you're, uh, you forget where you were coming from and your roots and of your cuisine. And you can't lose that because all of a sudden you, you end up with this cuisine, which doesn't really make sense. And it, it's not really that tastefully done. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it took about two years for me to, to, to do that dish. Cause obviously before we were just cooking very classically French and, and that was all of a sudden a break breakout dish where actually, you know, it took me two years to conceptualize subconsciously this dish that fits directly for where we are. And I would never have come up with this dish had it not been that I lived in Hong Kong. Right. Mm. Sort of sort of environment inspires what you yeah. thinking and how you cook. Yeah. And it wasn't forced. It just it just came naturally through conversations with friends and dining out and and it just works. Yeah, it really works. And that's one of my favorite dishes. And actually, uh, we, when we first came big, we had a lot of dishes on these menu. Like we had a pigeon pativier, which everyone really wanted to eat. And it was a very mm -hmm. popular dish. And, but we took it off the menu because I was so tired of it. And I felt that I didn't want people to think that we were just one trick ponies and, you know, just relying on these dishes. So I took out a lot of the, the signature dishes of the restaurant in about 2018. Um, and we replaced them with a lot of new dishes and, we still remain popular and we, and, and, you know, we climbed to number four on the, on the uh, San Pellegrino list. And there was, uh, mm. that was quite vindicating to see that um, although we'd got popular for certain things that actually we were getting even more popular for the work we were doing by changing the menu rather than just sticking oh, to wow. the same dishes. Yeah. 
I felt really, uh, it was quite a, I guess it's quite risky to change your whole menu and, and people are still coming for these dishes and saying, and, and feeling disappointed because they can't have them. But actually, like you say, showing people something that they didn't know that they wanted actually proved better because they wanted this dish, but we gave them this dish and actually they liked it more. Right. That's a, yeah. a testament to, to your, your skills and your team's execution too, right? For sure. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and, you know, and selling it to people and realizing that, you know, we're not just, we're not just doing these dishes and relying on these dishes we've had on the menu for four years. Like it's we're just constantly moving forward. And, you know, maybe next year I'll change it and it'll be completely different and people won't like it anymore, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. right. As long as it, as long as the restaurant stays busy, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know that's the the next question is you know what's what's next in your career in in Boulogne and how do you, I mean I read something about uh, you're making a next step in your career. I'm not sure if that's real or not. Yeah. But you know. Yeah, I'm moving to um, I'm moving to Tokyo at the end of. Uh, we'll be opening a restaurant in Tokyo in June of next year. Um, you know, I love Hong Kong and I had no plans ever to leave Hong Kong at all until this opportunity came up. And I felt that, um, so I'll be joining the Four Seasons um, wow. Hotel and, and opening a restaurant inside there in June. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that, I've always loved Japan, of course, and, but to work in Japan is different to the visit and I understand that. But um, mm-hmm. I'm 32 years old and I'm being given the opportunity to cook in Tokyo, which is a, is a dream for any chef, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I just couldn't Paris turn it down. Paris and Tokyo are probably the two... Paris and Tokyo. Yeah. And then I think I've completed all the cities I want to. I've done London, Paris, New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong. And uh, there's not many more I could do, I think, aside from them that are better. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I think that it's a great um, opportunity and to really learn another another culture and another another cuisine. And of course, I love Japanese food mostly. But um, and if I can tastefully be influenced by the culture and the cuisine than like I have in Hong Kong and then I, I, I think it can work very well yeah right. but a lot and of work to do but yeah yeah, yeah I mean that's do. you know trying to get an understand of you know if you can to the extent that you can share you know what's the concept there other particular things you're looking at well, I mean concepts I, I don't really I don't believe in concepts so much I think that you know, Bologna is not a concept. It's just good food and wine. And, and that's what mm-hmm. we do. But the food that we cook, that I cook is, it's, it'll continue in the new, in the new restaurant for sure, because that's the way I like to cook. And I love to cook. And that's what I believe in. It just mm-hmm. so happens that other people enjoyed it in, in the setting of Bologna. But we're going to do pretty much continue the journey of what you started, but just do it better. You know, that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's what we got to do. We, we, we hopefully be able to do it better and keep improving year upon year and, and localize to a point where, people enjoy it and have a reference to what we're doing. And um, yeah, I, th- I think, and cook for the local local crowd and uh, and hopefully they like it. And, you know, you use, uh, you know, it's a highly competitive city, Tokyo, as is Hong Kong, but Tokyo, is, you know, the standard of cooks and chefs in Tokyo is very high. And, um, you know, if I, I could easily stay in Hong Kong and then continue to be successful for many years to come based upon what we've already done. Uh, but it's time to get out of the comfort zone again and try and try something new and be surrounded by people that are better than you. And, um, you, you know, I've gone for, I, in Hong Kong, I'm, you know, I'm very well regarded and people know who I am and you now I'm going to go to Tokyo and no one knows or cares who I am. So I got to start from <laughs> zero again. And that's, right. that's quite daunting, but it also exciting. Yeah. I mean, to your point that you were just talking about, you know, you don't want to be stuck in the same situation forever. Right. Yeah. So, 
No, it's mm-hmm. you don't want to be the last guy at the party, and uh, you know it's it's time to time to try something new. I think, and uh, I think that it's a great move, and I'm so excited to do it. And and we have a lot of guests that come from Japan currently at Bologna, and I, I think that oh, uh, nice. yeah, so I think that it's a good move. And yeah, Hong Kong and Tokyo are so so close, and I hope that a lot of the guests that come to Bologna will also come visit Tokyo, and it's. Uh, it's just another adventure. Why not? You know, I'm, I'm, you're only young once. And if I screw it up, I, I still have years ahead of me to figure out the next move. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And is this something that you, you know, as far as cooking and being in the restaurant business, is this something that you plan on, you know, like you said, doing for, you know, X amount of years or uh, you continue it's to do that? It's hard to say. Or? Yeah. I mean, I, I love cooking and I love being a chef, um, but it is a young man's game. And I think that, um, for me, competitive cooking is, which is what we we do, right? We're, we're very competitive people. You can either be in or out, and I think that um, you can't be halfway. So, for example, I, I'm a single guy. I have no children. I don't have any commitments to anything. So, I can be 100% into my into my job. Uh, but at some point in my life, that I will have to compromise on that. And I think as soon as that starts, then it's time to get out. Right. And diversify into something else. I mean, of course, you're still, I'll still be involved in restaurants at some point, but whether or not I'll be able to cook behind the stove every single day, I just, at that point, I don't know if I, if I can. I, I, I either want to do it all or nothing. Interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like an athlete kind of mentality where. Yeah, I, I be, believe it's 100% you know. an athlete mentality. You, you only have a certain mm-hmm. amount of years where you can be competitive and get out of bed earlier than everyone else uh, and not have to consider anyone else in your life. Um, but then as you get older, of course, like certain things change and you get married and you have children and, and you don't want to, you know, if I have to choose between baking my bread every morning or taking my children to school, like how do you choose? <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how to choose right now. So right now I don't want to choose, you know, mm-hmm. I'd rather just bake my bread. And then once I'm done with that, I can maybe take some children to school. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I guess that's all the questions I have. Uh, thanks again, okay. uh, Chef Calcutt, for uh, being with, with us and letting us know, you know, your thoughts and your philosophy. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for after. having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, hopefully, when when things go go uh, normally, when I when I go back to Hong Kong or Tokyo, I'll be able to uh, visit. Yeah, come visit anytime for sure. I'd love yeah. to love to cook for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Right on. Thank you. All right. Have a nice day. Right. Thank you. You too. See ya.